Hey there, friends. Welcome to the She Loves Podcast. This is side episode number three. I've been going through the Book of Romans with some gals in my church, so it's been really fun to just unearth the scriptures and study it for ourselves and see what God's Word has to say. I love the Book of Romans. It deeply changed my life, and um, I'm eager for everyone else to have that experience. So if you are looking for a place to study the Bible and you want to do it right alongside us, I included the study questions that I gave the girls I included them in the show notes, so you're welcome to do that. Pull up a virtual chair, drink some coffee, and uh, study alongside us. So, these episodes have included a lot of Bible reading. Like, I'm literally just reading straight out of the Bible and telling you, here's what I asked the girls, here's what we learned, here's what we talked about. So, um, there you go. Here it is, Romans 3, uh, starting in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision much in every way to begin with? the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God? What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do good, or excuse me, do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Okay, so I asked the girls, what character traits of God do we see listed in these verses? We see that he is faithful. We see that he is a judge, that he is just. There's some references to his righteousness. And there's a reference to his truth. God is true, though every man be a liar. Talks about his glory. There's so much about the character of God packed into these eight verses. And I love that verse. What verse is it? Uh, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? by no means. None of God's character ever rests on human faithfulness. That is a bedrock truth that is good to lay one's head on when you sleep at night, that God's character won't change just because your circumstances or the people around you surprise you or or maybe um, betray you. That doesn't mean God was unfaithful. We see this example in the Jews. Like they were entrusted as verse 2 says, with the oracles of God. They were supposed to be the spokespeople of God for the nations, and they kind of flopped. (laughs) They didn't do well. They had a lot of failure in their history. If you read the Old Testament, uh, you can hear the emotion of, like, God's heart. I don't know what to do with you. Like, um, he even, there are times he wants to just destroy them and start over. He sends them judgment. He promises them blessing, but they don't listen. It's just this, this mess of a people, and yet... God loves them and he is faithful to them because of who he is, not because of who they are. Now, these verses take a little bit of pulling apart, but if you look at the end, that's kind of where, not the end of the chapter, the end of this section, that's kind of the big question is, why not do evil that good may come? If our sin makes God seem more righteous, shouldn't we just like sin all the more? And that's where Paul says, No. Uh, Some people slanderously charge us with saying them, and they should 
saying that and they should be condemned because that is not the point here. You can kind of hear the same uh, sentiment in Romans 6 verse 1 through 2 where uh, he asks the hypothetical question, should we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That is not the plan here. What a ridiculous thing to say. Like, should I just be more sinful so God seems more righteous? But you know what? When we're trying to escape guilt, when we're trying to wiggle out of our sin, we come up with all kinds of creative excuses as to why we should not be judged. And Paul is just picking them off one by one. There's nothing you can do to escape the verdict of guilty. You are a sinner. God hates sin. He will judge you. The next couple of verses, they read kind of like a court scene. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul was a Jew. No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you hear all the evidence to support the accusation? (laughs) Everyone's guilty. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You hear the accusation, you're all guilty. You hear the evidence, goodness, how far does our sin reach? It talks about how uh, no one is righteous, no one, uh, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks. Even our intellect is marred by sin. We've all turned aside and together become worthless. Oh goodness, Paul attacks our mouths. Isn't that interesting? Of all the sins he picks to pin wickedness on, he says your throat, your tongue, you use it to deceive. And how true is that, that we've all done wicked things with our mouths. And at this point in Romans, I mean, there's no more excuses left. Paul has given ample evidence that all are guilty and doing good things is not going to get you off the hook. But the good news is finally breaking through. Let's look in verse 21. But now, ah, the word should glow right here. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, you probably, if you're listening to this, you probably have a loose understanding or some understanding, I shouldn't say loose, you probably have an understanding of the gospel in general, but imagine that this was the first time you'd ever heard this. Okay, so I'm a sinner and God's going to judge me and Jesus is going to get me out of this. How does some random Jewish guy dying on a cross free me from my sin? And Paul's about to explain that, but before we move on to to that point, listen to how... um, 
salvation is described in these verses. I love how it's called uh, grace as a gift. It's called redemption. And it's all in Jesus. Why Jesus? That's what we're going to set out to prove. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one whom has faith in Jesus. Okay, camp out in verse 26 and we'll try to answer this question. Why Jesus? What, what does Jesus have to do with getting me out of my sin problem? See how it talks about God as both just and the justifier? God is just. He has to play fair. It's in his character. But how can he be fair and go around declaring guilty people righteous? That's what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous. Does a good judge let a criminal go free? How do you feel about corrupt judges? Think if if someone violated or murdered your child, right? But promised to be a good citizen for the rest of their life. And the judge thought it through and said, meh, okay. Be good from now on. How would you feel about that? Wouldn't wouldn't doesn't that irk your soul? That that judge is corrupt. He is not being just. He's being a bad judge. Uh, what if that criminal who killed your child? What if he made an appeal based on all the good things he has done before? Like you know, I'm I'm actually except for that one time, I'm actually a fairly good citizen. And the judge decides to let him off the hook. And you're like, uh, what? what? You violated my child. You can't just go free for that. It doesn't matter what you've done. We know this to be innately true. The works of the law do not let us off the hook. And God is just. He can't just go around clearing guilty people. There has to be a way for all of this to work out. No. Violating a child, murdering a child. A child is a precious image bearer. But the sins we commit as humans aren't against other image bearers of God. They are against God. And theologians talk much about the infinite nature of God. What they're teaching is that God's value is unending. And that is very important to this discussion. If you're struggling to grasp this concept of being guilty and my sin being so bad, here's an illustration that really helped me. And we'll bring it back to our first question, but follow me here. The gravity of the crime is always relative to the person it was committed against. If you see a mosquito come by and he lands on your wrist and you smash it, how guilty do you need to feel about that offense? Uh, I mean, it's a mosquito. One less mosquito in the world. We're all happy about that. The mosquito's value is pretty puny, right? Imagine that you were at a neighbor's house and his pet chihuahua just was yipping and wouldn't be quiet. So in anger, you crushed the chihuahua. I don't know how you feel about chihuahuas. I'll just leave it at that. But let's be honest. I mean, that's a little bit more of an offense. That's someone's pet. You know, you can't just like crush a chihuahua because uh, you it was annoying you. That that's You don't have a right to do that. That chihuahua is more valuable than that mosquito, right? Imagine a baby was annoying you. Just wouldn't stop crying. It turns my stomach to even say this. But in your anger, you crushed it because it just wouldn't shut up. Uh, that offense 
it is unspeakably abominable, right? Because the offense was committed against a person, a valuable image bearer of God. That offense is much more grievous. Well, when you sin, even if it doesn't seem like a big deal, you have to remember that your sin is being committed against a God who is infinitely valuable. He doesn't have an end to how precious, how holy, how just, how good he is. So your sin against him is infinite. It's justly infinite. That's an important thing to realize because it's what makes Jesus the answer to our sin problem. By the way, that illustration is not original with me. I got it from a college professor. Just saying. Um, Okay, so God is just. He has to play fair. And those who sin against him commit infinite sins. But he's also, in verse 26, called the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And there we're back to the original question I asked a couple minutes ago. How does this Jesus get us off the hook from our sin? Well, there's two ways for a person, for infinite sin to be paid for. A finite person can pay for sin for an infinite amount of time. Finite means like a person who has an end to them, or excuse me, a person who doesn't have an unending value. You follow my meaning? A finite person is a human. So either as a human, a finite person, you can pay for your sin for an infinite amount of time because your sin is against an infinitely valuable God, and that's why hell is a just punishment for sinners. If I've struggled in the past, I don't always want to admit it, but grappling with like, is hell really a fair punishment for our sin? Well, when you realize that your sin is against an infinite being, it deserves an infinite punishment. That really helped me. I don't know if uh, you've ever grappled through that, but that really helped me understand why hell is a just punishment for sinners. It's because of who we sin against. Anyways, so you can pay for infinite sin for an infinite amount of time as a finite being or an infinite person can pay for your infinite sin one time. This is why Jesus is the answer for our sin problems because Jesus is God. So he is an infinite being. And because he was perfect, he had no sin of his own to pay for. He could step into your place and pay it on your behalf. And that's what his crucifixion was. It was this infinite person stepping in for you, paying when God poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross, he wasn't, pu- he wasn't angry with Christ for Christ's crimes. Christ didn't commit any crimes. Jesus was bearing the unrighteousness of all so that any who would believe could be freed from guilt, sin, shame, could be freed from the judgment of God that they justly deserve. He paid for infinite sin one time. Amen? Amen. I got really excited about this. So, so neat to see how God would accomplish our salvation. Such a loving and good God we serve. Verse 27, rounding out the passage, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? We just talked about that. You can't get yourself out of your sin. You're stuck with it. No amount of law keeping can uh, fix your problem. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith. 
the Jewish people by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, then do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And those last couple of verses hint to what you'll study in verse, excuse me, in chapter four. But I love verse 27. What becomes of our boasting? God's salvation plan flies in the face of human pride, doesn't it? There is nothing you can do. All you can do is throw yourself on Jesus. And he is just because of his sacrifice and faithful to forgive sin. I hope this was an encouragement to you. Um, If you've been trudging with me through this Romans series, um, it's been pretty bleak for a while. (laughs) Romans 1 and 2 and the first part of 3 today. um, It's pretty hefty. Wow. We are sinners and we need help. There's no getting off the hook. I really encourage you, though, to think through the amazing grace of God, how by simple faith one is freed from that pressure to be good enough for God, to get rid of your sin. There's so much power in that statement. And then if you're new to this whole idea of the gospel, will you think through and be honest with your soul? Like, are you really trusting in Jesus? Are you hoping to add a little bit to what he's done for you? That's not faith. That's works. (laughs) Be cautious. Satan is sneaky and he's really good at getting you to add some works to what Jesus already did or to teach you to uh, rely on your own work instead of on the righteousness of Christ, but don't buy it. It will ruin you. Trust Christ and his completed work on the cross. The rest of Romans is going to explain this and pull it apart and just display it in different ways. The gospel is almost like a diamond. Like you can just look at it, uh, just change the angle a tiny bit. And all of a sudden you see this burst of new beauty. Um, That's what the gospel is like. So the rest of Romans is going to kind of explain um, even more about how God made his salvation plan work all together. So thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed our little side episode. Go check out the study notes if you want to dig in for yourself. And I will see you next time.